difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. In our last episode, we discussed Ryan Johnson's high school neo-noir Brick, a murder mystery that creates its own world, which feels something like a 1940s Dashiell Hammett novel and something like a John Hughes high school drama. This week, we're looking at Johnson's latest film, Knives Out, which draws from and upends murder mystery conventions in similar ways. Knives Out starts as something of an Agatha Christie cozy mystery set in a household full of cantankerous, larger-than-life characters who all have plausible motives for murder, and evolves into an Alfred Hitchcock movie full of tension, chases, and sudden twists. Christopher Plummer plays Harlan Thrombey, a famous thriller writer whose success is supporting a wide variety of family members, played by a cast including Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Chris Evans, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, and Catherine Langford. Then Harlan dies after a contentious evening with the family, and detectives Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Craig come in to explore the options, reluctantly assisted by Harlan's in-home caregiver Marta, played by Ana de Armas. The film was billed as something of an ensemble comedy based around the family, but it subverts those expectations early on by turning into a more class and race-based story about how the white upper-class entitled Thrombey family treats Marta differently when they see her as a charity case they can praise themselves for being nice to, and later on when they see her as a threat. But Johnson upends the mystery genre even further when he reveals, surprisingly early on in the film, what actually happened at Harlan. The whodunit aspect of the movie suddenly becomes less relevant, though there's still a little ambiguity to be mined out of the situation. But instead of a whodunit, the film becomes a what-happens-next story, as the people chasing the mystery approach the people who already know the secret, and Johnson teases out the inevitable confrontation between them. It's a very different movie from Brick, much goofier and broader, but in the same sort of way, it jumps around in time, acknowledges audiences' expectation for the genre and subverts them, and creates its own outsized world for the characters to play around in. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live till I die. You think one of his family walls walls. killed? Is that what you're suggesting? You all love twisting the knife into one another. Up your ass. Oh, very nice. Matter of fact, eat shit. How's that? Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. Smug smile. Definitely eat shit. So I feel like I know the answer to this question, but hey, what everybody think of Knives Out? It's very good. I enjoyed it, I enjoyed <laughs> it immensely. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. I've seen it twice. Uh, I saw the premiere at TIFF, which was just one of the most enjoyable screenings I've ever attended because it was just it just plays the audience like a fiddle, you know. And the and it works like Gangbusters is so funny. You know, the the reveals when they happen land so hard and are so delightful, and you can just you can just have that palpable sense of the audience just being on the line from the beginning. Like that's mm-hmm. so hard to do. And when I saw it again recently at a, you know, at a quarter filled screening at the landmark on a Sunday night, it was the same experience of just like a much smaller audience. And yet 
you had that same sense, that same delight, that same feeling that everyone was really engaged and having a great time watching it. And I just, I just think it's a fun movie that also has so many layers to it, both in terms of the plotting and the themes of the th- of the thing. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. So I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was gonna say the same thing about it being a, a crowd pleaser. You know, I, I mean, I I also really liked it to put to put that out there. But I I uh, went to see it with my mom, who had no. I, I mean, I went to see it knowing, like, having heard you talk about it, Scott, having read stuff about it. Like, I had a pretty good idea of what I was in for, and I went to go see it with my mom, who had no idea. Like, she didn't even really know that this movie existed or what it was, and she was just like hooked almost immediately and uh, you know just enjoyed it so i i in uh, the pretty small audience we were with too it was a 10 a.m showing <laughs> uh, I, I go to 10 a.m movies now mm-hmm. um but yeah they were all just totally on board too so it feels arguably uh more of a crowd pleaser than last jedi just because a lot of last jedi made a lot of people angry but uh i think it's definitely one of if not his most uh crowd pleasing movie just wow i i wouldn't even thought of putting last jedi on any sort of list for for crowd pleasing movies and i mean mm. I, like it's got it's it certainly has its you know big like audience hoorah moments but i i just think of at this point i think of that movie i think of the the controversies around it and the temper tantrums <laughs> yeah. thrown around I, it i i would because i left that movie thinking wow everyone's gonna love yeah. this it's so <laughs> stupid yeah so, so, mike ryan my, my uh writes it up rocks my my old co-worker since he like he says right away it would be a divisive movie he was way ahead of the curve on that and like i think he just understands uh the sort of um brain dead fanboy mentality mm. better than that i want to talk about 10 a.m just briefly 10 a.m movies are the best you just you show up <laughs> you know especially if, if you're like me and you're there's always this threat you're gonna you know especially like post-lunch there's always this threat you're gonna, gonna <laughs> fall asleep worst. you know yeah. yeah yeah 10 a.m some coffee it's the best all right go on sorry <laughs> <laughs> you don't feel compelled to eat a bunch of popcorn and feel like no, crap afterwards. Too early. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Knives Out just seems to be kind of the the season's big, like feel good. Everybody can go watch it. Movie. It's it's mm-hmm. one of the few movies that it just seems like. You know, uh, it came out around Thanksgiving. And so I was exposed to opinions from like a wide variety of people that I don't normally talk movies with. And everybody either loved it or hadn't seen it yet, but wanted to because everybody they knew had Mm -hmm. loved it. You know, it just it seemed like one of those movies just being carried along on a general wave of of cheerful, good feeling. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a hit when my in-laws went to see it. They rarely go to movies. And and it's heartening, too, because... I mean, I think the whodunit and this has a certain amount of, of built-in appeal and this cat and the fact that there's there's like something somebody for everyone in this cast, too. But it, I, I find it refreshing anytime a non-franchise property does does well. Uh, so that, that was you know, and of course, Ryan Johnson is someone I whose work I've enjoyed. So I like to see that happen. But uh, yeah, it was very heartening to see people turning out for this. And do you have a sense of what drew your in-laws to it? Because I would think that I, like a lot of the things that would draw people like us to the movie, like that that cast. It just just the idea of like like let's watch Michael Shannon and Jamie Lee Curtis like yell at each other is an appeal. But for people who don't see a lot of movies, maybe don't know who Ryan Johnson is, maybe don't have a lot of an association with a lot of these these cast members, mm-hmm. what was it that they that made them say this is the one we see this year? Uh, that's a good marketing campaign uh, yeah. too, and a great title. And you know, come on, Knives Out, 
Can't resist that. <laughs> no, just just good good buzz, uh, and it, it, it seems like if you if you're sitting also with the family on Thanksgiving, you're thinking what what can we possibly see together? It has a kind of kind of a nice general audience vibe to it, right? And I think there is as Keith said, kind of this uh, uh, an appeal to the who done it, but it's never that well executed, right? I mean, like you know, you, you hear about all of these films that have influenced. Knives Out are in the the Knives Out is in the tradition, is but very few of them are you know, work on that on as many levels as Knives Out does. Yeah, on, I mean, on it, a plotting it, level, or a style level, none of that stuff. Mechanically, it's so great. I mean, um, and I read a piece for the Ringer, kind of about our old friend Clue, basically about how I, I think this is a much extremely much better movie plot, better plotted yeah. movie than Clue. But they they both kind of get that the deepest appeal for a whodunit comes from everything but the mystery in many ways as as good as the mystery here is uh it's it's you know it's your way to to visit a world you wouldn't ordinarily visit and and these big memorable characters but anyway speaking of uh of clue i just want to share with our listeners that uh back when we uh paired uh clue and ready or not which i don't i don't think i was on that one but i was obviously part of the planning for it uh, and i went to see ready or not and they showed a preview for this movie beforehand and I was like, oh, crap, why didn't we save Clue <laughs> to do with <laughs> Knives Out? But it, in hindsight, I'm, I'm actually glad we saved it and did the, the, this pairing instead. But it also um, kind of reminded me that this film, along with Ready or Not and Parasite, three uh, three films we've done episodes on, do kind of form a, you know, a class inequality triptych at the movies in 2019, which I would hesitate to characterize that as the reason that people are drawn to this movie. But I think it does perhaps speak to what has resonated with at least uh, large portions of the audience who have, have seen this film as well as those other ones. Yeah, our, our friend Noel Murray wrote a piece, and I don't actually haven't read it yet, but but I, I uh, the I, as with all things Noel, I want to read it. And, and its, it's thesis intrigued me. It was basically about how Knives Out is kind of in the tradition of, of Columbo and other whodunits where, where it's about all about like sticking it to corrupt rich people and it's kind mm-hmm. of the subtext or in often in this movie, this the, the text of it as well. Yeah, I mean, Succession has that quality too mm-hmm. it's like we kind of like to see them be a little bit miserable <laughs> but i think that i mean it's them the, being rich people <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and i think there's also you know a sense on johnson's part of like how do i make this relevant for now and and it's like okay i can just turn this entire setting into a huge metaphor for america and for where its values are at now uh, specifically in relation to class in relation to immigration and race and it's just like and he does it in a way that is extremely pointed and sharp but not i don't think didactic really it's fun it's fun and and well observed and it's kind of almost got kind of a get out type quality i was thinking of there's a moment in the movie where i think it's don johnson's character uh makes a hamilton reference which felt so (laughs) much to me like like the barack obama i would vote for barack obama multiple times uh, reference and, and get out it was like that level of like yeah you're part of this family to a point <laughs> to the point that where we can use you and you can be the beneficiary of our largesse but to actually have an, a real stake in what we have that's not 
anything we're going to allow you to do. All of that being in relationship to Marta and how he yes. sees Marta, how he refers to Marta. I do see the parallels with Get Out and much as with, you know, Get Out's big catharsis at the end. There's a big catharsis at the end of this movie. That that final shot, I don't think people are going to be forgetting anytime soon. But at the same time, Johnson brought up Agatha Christie and Hitchcock as big influences. And this also just reminded me hugely of one of my all-time favorite Hitchcocks, The Lady Vanishes. Mm. Because The Lady Vanishes is, in a way a movie about uh, the mysterious disappearance of a woman and the question of whether the the people looking for her, one of the people looking for her just imagined her or whether she was ever really there. But Hitchcock kind of front loads that story by showing you the lady and like giving you a set of stakes that's very different from the stakes of almost everyone in the movie because you already know the answer. You know she was real. You know that the person that's being gaslit is not crazy and, and didn't imagine her. You're in a different mindset from almost everybody on screen. And Johnson does that exactly that with Knives Out when he reveals fairly early on exactly how things went down with Harlan, which (laughs) in the theater I just found so shocking. I was like, where are the little pinholes in this? Is the movie over? (laughs) Yeah, like how is he going to subvert this and it's going to turn out that none of that is actually true? Or like he cuts away at a very pregnant moment. Like what happened immediately after that that I'm not seeing? And I, I spent too much of this movie trying to outsmart the movie mm-hmm. which is why mm-hmm. I need to see it again <laughs> yeah. I, I need to watch the movie that's on the screen instead of like all of the alt movies that are playing out in my head but at the same time I love a movie that makes me think like that you know I love a movie that that doesn't let you just watch it passively and uh, and without thought like I, I love a movie that gets my, my inner wheels spinning really quickly as I try to figure out like what I'm watching and by by giving away the the ending to the the mystery really early on, he just completely flips the table on what people normally expect from a murder mystery story. You know, even in Brick, you you don't find out till the end what happened. Mm-hmm. And here it's like, well, let's just dismiss with that pretty early and then see what what the story turns into as a result. It's like a Russian doll effect or something where there's just, you end up being these layers that you don't expect that are added on to the movie. I'm I'm a little embarrassed to to admit this, but you talking about uh, trying to sort of outsmart the movie made me think of it, Tasha. Like, I'd say like up until pretty well into the final act of this movie, I was holding on to the idea that Harlan had faked his death somehow, like even though we saw it, like, you know, because we're like introduced to him as someone who likes to play games. And there's the whole thing about the stage knife, which turns out to be significant in a different way at the end of the film. But uh, but I was like, I was like, I was sure that it wasn't going to be what we saw. And it was what we saw. The story turned out to be what happened after what we saw or like the context for what we saw. But I did definitely have that experience of trying to figure out something that had already been told to me. <laughs> I think in the same sort of way, I mean, one of one of one of my favorite sort of intellectual aspects of this movie is that we get a scene where the detective brings together all of the potentially guilty parties like in a drawing room for the big like, here's why everybody had a motive and here's why you didn't do it and why you didn't do it and why you didn't do it kind of thing. And then that that entire sequence is almost immediately upended with uh, the detectives ending up just like pulling one character off into a different room uh, and having a pretty contentious conversation. And the whole trope kind of falls apart. Like the whole trope is he drives right up to the edge of Disneyland and he turns around and comes back and kind of like leaves you in this liminal space of, 
well, well like when are we going to get back to the drawing room where everybody is for the big reveal like no that's not how he's planning on staging this but he is planning on setting up enough of it that you think that you're getting it, that you think you know where the story goes. And that's when the tablecloth comes out from under the silverware. In a way, you have that sort of gathering, too, with the with the will reading oh, as yeah. well. And that takes you to another level of the, of the story. And it also has one of my favorite moments in the movie, which is, which is Michael Shannon's reaction to the will. He just goes... Uh no, <laughs> no. This can't be. Um. So yeah, I mean the film is so satisfying in that it has every little thing figured out. All these little seeds that are planted early on, they they have payoffs down the line. I mean things like the coffee cup that we see at the beginning figures in, you know, at the end. But even something like the fact that Chris Evans' character has the help call him by his real first name, Hugh. That pays off brilliantly later as well, and and it's, it, the movie's just full of th- that kind of planning. And you just in, in the in the great the great feeling about watching the movie and watching it with an audience is that you have that level of excitement and comfort knowing that you are in good hands right from the start, and that the director is way way you're at least me way way ahead of where I am, I'm at in terms of the plotting of it, but not in a way that's confusing. It's satisfying, you know, because you don't, it, that doesn't happen very often. You often get confused during movies and you often feel like you figured the film out uh, or something like that. And that just that never happens here. You're just, it, you know, and ev- everything's been very planned and, uh, and, and executed well. And you're, you're confident from the start that you're going to be in a good place with this movie. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that, you know, this is an original story. You know, this is not the first sort of reviving of the drawing room mystery or the Agatha Christie mystery. Agatha Christie mystery that we've had in recent years, like Murder on the Orient Express was kind of a a big hit very recently. But, you know, that's a story that people are familiar with and come with expectations. And, you know, if not an exact awareness of the events, like an idea of how they should play out. And it is sort of a rarity to get a story like this that is so packed with distinct characters and a distinct story that references familiar tropes, but isn't beholden to any sort of existing material, really. And as an audience member, that's exciting and, like I said, kind of frustratingly rare uh, as, a, as a viewing experience these days. Well, in terms of having a bunch of distinctive characters, I, I'm sort of curious, like, who from the ensemble stands out for you? I the, the one place I could say I might be a little disappointed with this film was that the advertising all played up the ensemble so much. And I was expecting something more like Clue that was more uh, ensemble centric. And I feel like we got all of these like, like great teases for the ensemble. We spent some time with them, but we spent an awful lot of uh, an awful lot more time off with uh, Daniel Craig's character and with Marta. Mm -hmm. And not enough Jamie Lee Curtis. (laughs) uh, Yeah, not enough Jamie Lee Curtis, not enough Michael Shannon. Uh, But at the same time, the time that we do spend with them is so much fun. I'm curious if you guys have favorite performances in here or like what you want more of. I mean, I was perfectly happy with Daniel Craig and Anna de Armas, who are both outstanding in the movie, yeah. everyone's great in it too. And, and you know, it's just a matter of like if you think about the film as this huge organism, rather than expecting it to necessarily be all that democratic in terms of how it's distributing lines to every person. You think more of about like okay, each of these characters have 
their role to play, then it all feels much better uh, for for me. And so, and so everything is in its right place in this movie. But I, cinema I, is a democracy, Scott. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I, I, but I, I mean, Daniel Craig's performance is just so inspired. <laughs> the, uh, the casting, this, the, the decision, the weird decision to have him in that foghorn leghorn voice. Um, that man loves a southern accent, doesn't he? He's the last of the gentleman sleuths. <laughs> There's a whole New Yorker profile of him. Uh, I read I read uh, a tweet about the New Yorker profile about you. As a, that is an extremely 2019 line. Uh, um, yeah. But to have him the way, again, like, but that's something where Johnson's impact directorially is so important too, because it's not just Daniel Craig's performance. It is the it's the, the way that he establishes that character. You know, it, we don't we see him in the background during the, these those ar- initial interrogations just. Occasionally hitting a piano key, and then eventually they say, "Who the hell is this guy?" You know, and so and then he and then slowly but surely he kind of, you know, he's goes from being the guy in the background to the to the one who's actively out there trying to figure everything out, and so that's a great performance. And and, and Armas, um, somebody that not a lot of people are familiar with her. I saw her in the um, Eli Roth movie with Keanu Reeves. Did you ever see that? No, one? knock knock. No, knock I didn't knock. See yeah, that yeah. One. She's, uh, she's, she's in like, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Oh, that's yeah. right. I think I think uh, such uh, joy. I think right. uh, uh, there's yeah. a film coming out called uh, No Time to Die that might familiarize more people with uh, with her. The new oh, James, she's in Bo- that too. New James Bond movie. Mm. Um, yeah, she's it's good. A, it's very a very good. It's a good performance, and it's you know it's hard to it's a tough one because she doesn't get to necessarily be the fun, colorful you know potential villainous character that she could be but you know it's a, it's the center of the movie and uh she's a very sympathetic character and um and she gets her comic payoffs too i mean that device where she can't uh, lie <laughs> without throwing up yeah <laughs> i mean the payoff on that is so spectacular i mean there's some, several mini payoffs but the big one at the end is just i mean it's a, one of those moments where you know, it's a, it's an applause moment. It was an applause moment at, at Tiffin. It was an applause moment in my you know quarter filled screening on a Sunday. Yeah, what a strange and specific quirk to saddle one of your your characters with. Like what a what a sort of bizarre and inspired idea for like the defining the defining thing that you build a character around. I also just really enjoy her interaction with Christopher Plummer, like the the sort of like central mm. sequence between the two of them where we kind of see how everything went down. Mm-hmm. He's just he's so often just kind of like such a, a warm and yet sharp presence on screen. And, and here you have to imagine that he's both capable of like leading this this big contentious flock of relatives like around in circles like bend them around his thumb however he wants um and also that he's this thriller writer who can come up with these like complicated Mm -hmm. schemes and and plots but he's also an old man you know he's an old kind of tired man who's on his way to dying and yet he's very very sharp and all of these things come together in this one big important sequence and I, I think he just he pulls it off brilliantly and that the interactions between him and Anna de Armas just you know they they help make her character in a really important way like seeing who she is as a professional like when she's alone with her patient when mm-hmm. she's not being victimized by like all of these like loud and overbearing people 
is incredibly important to understanding who she is and to sympathizing with her as a character. And a lot of that just comes from Plummer's generosity as a performer in kind of their their back and forth and like giving her space. Yeah, I mean, I kind of confessed to choking up the second time I saw it when uh, Daniel Craig is talking to her about her giving uh, medication and how, how she recognizes uh, like the viscosity of the, mm-hmm. of the medicines and, and, and how she wouldn't get the, these things mixed up and that she's, you know, got a kind heart, you know, and it was just like, it's a beautiful moment, you know I mean? It's, uh, and, uh, and it kind of gives the film, you know, a real soul and it, you know, cause it, because again, it, I mean, this could seem like an exercise certainly, and it is an exercise to some degree, but, but um, one that's animated with real feeling, I think. Yeah, it really doesn't feel mechanical as as complicated of a gimcrack as it is, like as as much as it's a whole bunch of mousetrap parts being put together. We we've had people already contacting us saying, Are you gonna pair knives out with sleuth? Are you gonna pair knives out with mousetrap? Are you gonna pair knives out with clue? Well, obviously we can't pair knives out with clue, but like all of these other films are films that do feel very stagey and mechanical and like a series of parts, a series of dominoes that get knocked over uh, after having been meticulously set up. And this movie like definitely doesn't feel as meticulous as brick. It feels much shaggier and more loose limbed. I, I think it just ends up giving it a, a, like a very warm feeling. Yeah. I mean, not, it feels not organic. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. not, not, not in a scream way, but it definitely feels like a world in which people understand how these mysteries work and, and they exist with it. I mean, obviously in a very concrete way, that's, it's that sort of word because plumber's character writes those sorts of mysteries. I wouldn't call it, self-aware in a really you know not not in a you know self-referential way but it's it's one step away from the world in which which a murder mystery is some sort of novel thing it's uh also a world in which one of the characters can look around harlan thromby's house and make a joke about him living on a clue board exactly (laughs) oh my gosh i love that house Mm -hmm. so like i love that set so much it like i i think you guys talked a little bit about how much the mansion and ready or not was was a character and like that's just tenfold here and what i think one of my favorite details of this movie was all the um the little you know gugas throughout the house that were clearly like gifts that harlan had got it gotten you know f- for the success of his various books the the most obvious one is the sort of halo of knives that everyone is uh you know interrogated in front of that is the I forget what the title of of the they say what the title of the book was that that was clearly a you know a relation to but there's like on on the walls on shelves there's just these little like almost like swag type items but you know more celebratory than that little little just tchotchkes or commemorative tchotchkes of the of the books that he's written you know and it just it gives the house such personality and also tells you something about that character and his career and the the context of this mystery writer that we're we're dealing with also the you know your your secret entrances and your oh yeah that window <laughs> that win- such a good the, window the window i mean that that's uh that's clever i think yeah with also the- some very good dogs very good <laughs> yeah they know they the, and that figure into the to the mystery well and um you know, and again, that's something that gets set up. It's another seed that gets planted. I mean, the, that's the opening shot of the film: are those mm-hmm. dogs dashing towards the camera, and those dogs, you know, figure figure in to the mystery in um, important ways. So, I mean, there's there's like no T uncrossed, no I undotted. 
Well, speaking of settings, that's something we discussed a lot already in terms of uh, Brick. I I feel like there are a lot more connections between these two movies that we should probably explore. Um, So let's take a break and then come back with connections. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I feel like with this one, we almost have to start with detective archetypes and and sidekick archetypes. We with Brick, we've got this uh, like pretty much the the lone forties PI, like the guy who a woman comes to him with a problem and he sets out to solve it, and then the situation is not exactly what he thought it was. Much as we uh, we saw in Chinatown, uh, the woman withdraws the problem, and yet he keeps digging and digs himself in further and further, mm-hmm. and inevitably he gets the crap kicked out of him because that's what always happens in these stories. Uh, but he he bowls his way on towards a pretty tragic and painful ending where uh, a lot of people die. And his sidekicks in this are uh, a woman who's trying to play him and Brain, uh, a man who's loyal, but not a ton of a man in and of himself. In Knives Out, we've got a very different cliche, the kind of the Southern fried, slow talking, sees everything kind of detective. Although the movie kind of makes a, an early play at, oh, maybe he's not as smart as you think he is. Like maybe he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. And then it kind of flips that and says, oh yeah, he does. <laughs> and his uh, his companion in this is a a caretaker who doesn't want to be his companion or his sidekick and who can't lie and throws up when she tries. They're, they're very, very different takes on very different tropes. Uh, but in both cases, they kind of come down to let's look at a bunch of like familiar types and then kind of flip them a little bit. I actually think Daniel Craig's southern accent, uh, the whole performance really that, that he's giving there is sort of like unexpected in the context of that type of detective. I mean, just to like go out a little more broadly, s- sort of like the twist of Knives Out, you know, the the way that the, the twist of Brick is like this is a... 40s noir but set in a high school uh knives out is a like a drawing room mystery which is sort of an inherently old-fashioned and inherently english genre you know or british genre translated to a very 2019 america you you know on 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 the surface level like the the mansion and the way everyone's dressed like it, it looks like that but it's not the actual sort of context we are used to seeing a drawing room mystery in. And similarly, I don't feel like the sort of detective character that Daniel Craig is drawing on is one that I associate with this sort of like almost Creole draw. Or it, it reminds me more of the, like if we're talking cliches, it's more like the country lawyer. Like, I'm just a simple country lawyer. But, <laughs> you, you know, like that feels more like what he's drawing on, you know, than any sort of detective we've seen like this. Maybe Columbo, like, you know, but that was, he was not a particularly Southern in his uh, demeanor. 
Well, if you want to talk about that type of character, I mean, we we're we're also speaking of the Cohen influence. I mean, it's a very much like Tom Hanks and the Lady Killers, right? I mean, oh that, yeah, uh, which is which happens to be my my all time favorite Tom Hanks performance, <laughs> even though it's almost everyone's least favorite. Wow, Cohen, Cohen Brothers movie. I just think <laughs> holy that holy crap! Wow, I, I think it's great. <laughs> I think he's really funny. Oh, in that we movie. may have we may have discovered something. I disagree about you with you more than I disagree with you about burrito oh, wow. lettuce. And My you God, actually Scott. don't like that performance. That performance. Uh, I, I, I will I will find the middle ground here as as, as I sometimes do, <laughs> which is like I don't think the movie's good, but I think Hanks is very good at in that performance. But are you so you're so violently opposed to the performance itself that you can't? Uh... Oh golly, uh, I mean, in in having seen this movie, maybe I just need to revisit it as a as a sort of like act of comedic irony i just disliked the film so much Mm. i i just i thought it was so full of of dumb caricatures that weren't fun which is just such a an exception to the rule for the coen brothers who are so often bring out like kind of dumb characters that are an absolute blast yeah it's kind of there was there was a dip there that that, i think it's i like a little better than intolerable cruelty i guess but i don't I think they're both the, kind of the weakest, uh, the weakest films. Mm. They but there's a connection there, is what I'm saying. Between <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to like get lost. That was on, great like, misdirection, least, guys. Like the least, uh, <laughs> least liked Coen Brothers movie. But, we, um, we we took the audience's expectation that we were going to talk about the film that's like the marquee film, like on the title of the the podcast, and then we flipped their expectations by turning it into a conversation about the Coens. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, it undercuts the thought that he would be, as Genevieve suggested, sort of a more perhaps high toned posh br- right brilliant uh guy he was he's uh he's a little unexpected for everyone and um and, and sometimes you know funny accents are just funny <laughs> it is great I, I was reading an interview with johnson where he was asked about the accent and he admits that even he was like kind of unsure about it while it was happening he's like is this too much I don't know, <laughs> but, but he he uh, said basically how I ended up feeling about it is like the first 20 minutes or so of it, you're like, eh, but then you just kind of like get into the groove of it. You're like, yeah, this is right. This is what this character talks like. I feel like if it had been a different actor, if this was like an unknown actor coming in and doing this, mm. or, you know, maybe even if it was a, a Tom Hanks coming in and doing this, if the actor was too famous it might seem if it was if it was an unknown actor it feels like such a reaction to bond yeah if it was an unknown actor it would seem uh like just huge and and silly and if it was a very very well-known actor uh it would maybe seem like a a bad flex like it, it would seem ridiculous but here it does seem like a reaction to bond it seems like him playing against type and it seems like him playing a a comedy trope specifically in contrast to how like humorless and soulless and and hateful his bond is and just the the warmth the ridiculous southern warmth of this character is a comedic trope in and of itself and i think it's fun i think generally speaking also um british actors have an easier time slipping into a southern accent than than other accents mm-hmm. yeah uh, i think i think this is it's a it's a strange accent, but it's an accent you can maybe it bears, it bears more resemblance to what you would find in the real world than say Jeremy Irons and Watchmen or uh, <laughs> uh, Cumberbatch and anything where he has to be like an American like the sort of like super enunciated um, you know as if every word was just being deeply considered and pushed out one syllable at a time. 
the nine Mets are my favorite squadron, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that um, a specific to reference to something, or, or? Uh, that's the that's a that's the Simpsons. Remember when oh, Apu right. tries, sure, sure, sure. tries to be more like a like a everyday guy? Sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. I just yeah, you got it. T- you got it, Genevieve. Right? The nine Mets are my favorite yeah. squadron. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but but uh, do we we haven't really talked about I mean in terms of support Daniel Craig's character is supported to some degree by Lakeith Stanfield and uh, Noah Segan as the as uh, support kind of they're not uh, they're not really support I mean Lakeith Stanfield is kind of there to uh, to like offer a little toss up fly uh, wrong theories for Daniel Craig to bat down mm-hmm. and Noah Segan's there for kind of comic <laughs> like dry comic release well, he well he's also just such a he's such a fan right he's like the big yeah. he's like the fan of uh of uh, harlan's work and uh that his excitement over all those uh, over just being in that setting is a wonderful contrast to you know the fact that they are actually you know dealing with a murder in a way, Lakeith Stanfield's role is more parallel, I think, to the Richard Roundtree role in Brick, mm-hmm. because the Richard Roundtree is also there to to kind of set up like the the law and order take on what's going on. I mean, it's sort of a contrast between authority figures. In one case, the police; in one case, uh, the assistant vice principal. But in another case, it's just sort of we're there to show you how the outside world uh, thinks of what's going on. We're there to set up the the stakes for what happens if if you don't solve this mystery, if you don't figure out what's going on. The Richard Roundtree character, uh, <laughs> Truman, is kind of there to set up like punishment awaits you if you if you don't get this right. Like we're we're basically going to throw you under the bus. He's also a little bit of the uh, the tough police captain who says, uh, you know, you're t- too far on a limb. You're out. You're really getting out yeah. there. Like you better pull it in. You better rein it in, Pliskinski, or we're gonna have your badge. So, like, Lakeith Stanfield, in the same sort of way, is just kind of there to, to model, oh, it was a suicide, we should shut the case. Oh, you know, we, let's, let's lead you repeatedly off down the wrong path. Uh, and, you know, it's, he's somebody for Craig's character to, to constantly pull against. He's, he definitely doesn't really help him much. Yeah, I actually, uh, our little list of connections to talk about, I actually just added at the bottom the police, but maybe uh, listening to you talk, Tasha, maybe just the authorities is is the connection. Because like, both of these films, and this is probably related to the detective archetype, you know, has this sort of figure of the authorities that the, the detective figure wants to keep away from his investigation in, in some way or another. You know, uh, Brendan hides a body, you know, to keep the, the police from interfering in this. You know, there's a there's a tension there between the private detective figure and the official police detectives, you know, and in Knives Out, it's played more comedically and a little more genially than it is in in brick but they are not uh characters who are you know functioning in tandem or as 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 sidekicks i think in knives out the closest thing that blanc has to a sidekick is marta which is really interesting because she is also sort of the subject of his investigation she's also victim you know she's she's a lot of different things but at least in the early going especially with that uh whole you know can't tell the truth or or can't lie or else she pukes thing she does sort of function as the person who can give him real unadulterated information the way that the brain gives to Brendan. In that sort of sense, Laura in Brick is kind of 
fulfilling that role for for Brendan. He's yeah. she's kind of there helping him and driving him around and and giving him information, giving him sort of the next step, but she's doing it presumably so she can keep an eye on him at all times so she knows where he's gone and so he can she can manipulate him into various situations. She's got a lot more agency than Marta appears to, but she has that same sort of sense of she is both helping him and the subject of his investigation. Like he, he repeatedly says, like, I can't trust you. If I take what you give me, then I'm only following the lines that you're not on. Like, I can't trust you. I've got to get there myself. And there's, there's the same sort of sense of like, you're at the center of the murder mystery I'm investigating. You can't also be my sidekick. And there's the same sense from her of, well, (laughs) that's, that's too bad because I'm really the most helpful ally you have here. Even if I don't necessarily in, in her case, she wants to be, and he doesn't want it in knives out. uh, She doesn't want to be, and he wants it, but you have kind of a similar dynamic in both cases, I think. And and in retrospect, there is kind of a fun contrast in knives out between what she feels she is throughout the movie, which is a suspect, and what he thinks she is, which is a, which is a sidekick, because he, I think, he senses immediately that she's not guilty. I think, I think he just knows, and so when she has to take steps to cover up things that look very, very incriminating for for, for her, he just kind of takes that in stride. He kind of just understands who she is and what her motivations might be in a certain situation, and it's kind of a fun contrast between the two that's revealed you know later on it feels a little like he lets her think that she's more on the hook for the murder than she is because it motivates her like he does want her help he does want her insight and i think by sort of playing it as well you know you are a suspect uh he he's kind of manipulating her into continuing to help him because she sees it as the only way to clear her name (laughs) <laughs> Even if partially clearing her name means hiding the evidence or trying to uh, like lead him off the right track. <laughs> I'm thinking of that chase scene too. So funny <laughs> with 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 her driving this car that won't get over sixty <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> and they seem to be out. They seem to be completely uh, in the clear. And uh, and I think it's Lakeith Sandfield said so that was the dumbest, the dumbest car chase. chase of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great moment. Like, I mean, it is exciting in its in its own way. You know, it's it's a car chase. You don't know what's going to happen. The stakes Mm -hmm. are high. Uh, Where's the story going to go from here? And then that character just jumps out and says, "Okay, that was really dumb. And again, it's kind of like upending your expectations. It's kind of like laughing at you for how much you enjoyed what just happened. Um, why don't we talk about the uh, the haves and the have-nots in these two films? Uh, obviously, it's a, a really big, significant deal in Knives Out, but e- even in Brick, there's definitely the sense of there's there are repeated references to the upper crust. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this this person's the upper crust. This person's not even the grease on the pie plate, and the <laughs> contrast between even between the pin and his uh, sad little constructed dank office versus that mansion where the party takes place. You, you definitely get the sense that there are different, not just social classes, but economic classes at play in this California suburb. Yeah. I'm struck in knives out about how many characters motivated, not just by one of the haves, but like moving up in the ranks of haves as well. And we have Tony Collette's character who's endangered is completely falling off of this but you know michael shannon's character is not michael shannon who plays uh the son who runs a publishing company runs quote unquote the publishing company you know he's he'll be fine no matter what happens he just wants more it's really interesting how for a certain type of person that 
you know, there's a line in Chinatown is like, you know, how, how much money is enough? You know, and then there's people that, that, you know, we see them in the real world and we certainly see them in this movie where, where nothing never seems to be enough. I think that you're on to something, but I kind of disagree that he's primarily motivated by more money. I think Michael Shannon wants more agency. Yeah. I think he wants more freedom. He wants to be able, he, he sees all of these opportunities to increase the the company line and to, to get more freedom and maybe to get himself into film and TV, which he sees as, uh, as more power. But I think he's more interested in the power than the money. I hmm. think he's more interested in not feeling like he's under Harlan's thumb. And in the same kind of way, it feels like what Jamie Lee Curtis wants is more respect. You know, she keeps going on about how she's a self-made woman, even though she only started her business because Harlan like gave her a bunch of money to do so. But it kind of seems like what she's out for is like for everybody to acknowledge how much better she is than like all of these people who are still like so firmly attached to his teat. And in the same sort of way, it seems like a lot of them just sort of like Tony Collette's character seems to want to have even more money uh, because she's, <laughs> you know, cheating in order to to get more money than she necessarily deserves. But like ultimately it seems like what she wants is more uh stability like more like ability to to do what she wants without answering to anybody and so forth and so on it kind of seems like they're all potentially financially comfortable in the moment but what they want is not more cash it's just more freedom to do whatever they want without answering to harlan well but there's also this this myth that they've bought into the uh, about themselves that they're self-starters which is bullshit right i mean that that, and that which is and again a very 2019 thing of just trump being born on third base and thinking that they're an entrepreneur or some sort of a genius for building an empire out of it so i think i think that that kind of feeds into their sense of self-worth to feel like they somehow pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and, and created this this incredible you know empire and that's just not the case you know i mean Mike, michael shannon is kind of the, the you know is a large adult son i mean there's, he's done nothing of distinction his dad doesn't trust him to do anything but just put his books out nothing else you know where you kind of get the parallel to that in brick i think is in brad bramish the football player uh, who yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty heavily implied that that huge mansion where the party takes place is his house. Like he's the one that gets defensive about Brandon being there and, and wants to assault him for it. He's the one that the party seems to kind of center around. I think it's possible that he's very rich in addition to being handsome and, and being a football player, but he's angry because he, he isn't getting more. He's angry because he thinks he should be on the team. He should be the starter. He should be like in every play and, most of what he does in the film is kvetch loudly about how great he is and, and how people just aren't understanding that and letting him play enough. There's that same feeling of, I have so many things that that other people might envy, but it's not enough. Like what I want is more power. What I want is more respect. What I want is more acknowledgement. Yeah, I think in, in Brick, it's much less about actual wealth, even though we do see indications that certain characters do come from from more privilege. And it's more about just social currency, which I think squares with the idea that this film is taking place in a very specific world that is centralized around this uh, idea of high school as its own world, you know, and in high school, like, yeah, there are rich kids, and those rich kids are often the popular kids, but they are not necessarily always you, you know like in, in high school 
at least in high school movies and the tropes of high school movies, popularity is the real currency, is the, is the real wealth. And I think that is the context of haves and have nots that the that Brick is trading in more than Knives Out, which is very uh, specifically about wealth and familial wealth and how it is doled out within the family. Do we want to talk about the structure of these two films? I, I think both of them kind of fundamentally start with a a large picture and then like narrow down and narrow down and narrow down to the point where you're you're only dealing with a couple of characters and then kind of jump back to tell you the story to tell you what just happened in a way that brings everybody else back in uh, i do you see the structure of, the, of these films as fundamentally similar i hadn't really thought of it that way until you described it just now but it does kind of it does kind of match doesn't it well, by describe it just now, I, what what you really mean is more or less read Genevieve's prompt. She was the one that made that. that <laughs> okay, sure. She was the one that noticed that. So I'm going to give her full credit for that. I mean, I don't want to overstate the extent to which these films jump around in time because Knives Out does does a little more. But Brick, for the most part, like we start with that jump to two days earlier and then it's pretty linear from there. And then we, we catch back up to the death and then go beyond it. So we sort of like circle back a little bit, um, you know, and, and Knives Out uh, takes us to basically the ending quote unquote, the ending or, or what happened, which is actually the beginning <laughs> in the middle of the film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it does have this sort of knotted structure. But both films, as you said, Tasha, you know, they take that beat at the end of the film to step back and show you how all of these things fit together. And it almost feels like sort of a courtesy to the audience because, you know, it's both of these films, it's very easy and and part of the point i would argue to sort of just get uh almost mesmerized by by them and like get really fixated on these little details that johnson is so good at drawing out in really subtle ways and you notice these little details like what's on the wall and you get really fixated on that and you can sort of lose the forest for the trees i guess so i i really appreciate that both films take that moment at the end to step back and show you the whole force and how it all fit together. And it makes those details that the film and by extension, we have been fixating on feel more rewarding in the context of that bigger picture. Yeah. I mean, the um, structure for knives out is more complicated for sure. I would say they both have in common the fact that they are, pretty well ahead of the audience at all times and they get to a different points where they catch us up and the point where we get caught up in brick is the very end and with knives out they're almost like little mini like stories within stories you know because we, you know we find out what really happened halfway through and then we get chris evans and in that whole scheme and you know there's a lot of layers to that kind of come come later so structurally it's a little bit trickier i I was just kind of happy that he was able to not do too much to do enough to where he surprises us and extends the story beyond what we thought it was going to be that he is way out ahead and then finds a way to reel us back in and then out again and there's like there's a real there's a yo-yo effect there with the audience (laughs) and and, uh it's 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 good to be yoed um but uh Uh, but uh, so so the, so it's complicated. I, I don't think you could, you know because I mean, structurally, brick is fairly is fairly simple compared to, to to knives out. I think because as you said, it's just 
you know you start two days before this body was was found and then it extends past it and it's and it's all pretty straightforward yeah i i think the idea that you're you're putting out about catching up about him always being ahead of the audience and then the audience always kind of having to play catch up is a really good one i i like the way that we talked about brick as being kind of this like intellectualized very worked through very thought through product of having had to sit on a script for six years waiting to to get together the money to make it, I think does make it feel very worked through. But Knives Out feels maybe, as I said earlier, like looser and more relaxed. But I, I do think that it still feels equally thought through and equally constructed and, and equally, you know, just like a, a very elaborate machine kind of designed to to draw you through the film. And again, I love that kind of story that makes you run really fast to keep up throughout the movie, that, that makes you have to keep engaged uh, like mentally at all times, because if you don't, you're not going to be able to catch up. And at the same time, it's not really trying to trick you, though. Like what, like what I'm struck by with Knives Out in particular, and to a lesser extent with, with Brick, is like, how the person who did it, you know, the guilty party, is the most obvious person. I mean, the guy's name is Ransom, <laughs> you, you know, and like he's the he's the like right up front. Every you know, everyone in the family is kind of saying like, yeah, they have this really weird relationship, and he's like, you know, the only not self made person, and he's the the person that you think would have done it, and it, he's the person who did it. But it's how. It's how he did it that is where the surprise lies, you know? That's sort of the case with Tug, too. I mean, you know, he's the muscle, he's the violent one, uh, I guess, although there's a lot of violence in Brick, which we didn't really talk about when we were talking about detective archetypes. I kind of wanted to talk about how, just how often Brendan is getting his ass kicked, <laughs> like, to the point where he is, like, falling apart by the end of the, the film, but... There, I've mentioned it. But again, you know, it's it's the person that on the surface you maybe would have most expected to do it. And the fact that it comes across as a revelation at the end of the film, I think, speaks to the way that Johnson sort of, you know, digs into this mystery and the details of it and the the why of it in a way that the revelation, again, is not the person who did it, but why they did it and what led them to do it. Yeah, it's almost like he starts with, hey, here's this really obvious person that might have committed a murder. But the world is so complicated. Like that's that probably isn't the case. It's probably something right. much richer. And then once again, he's way out ahead of the audience, and you all have to to catch up to the point where you began, where there's this really obvious person who might have committed a murder, and and the question is really why in both cases. Well, speaking of catching up, if uh, you have not caught up on either Brick or Knives Out and you want the opportunity, Brick is widely available on streaming services, including on Netflix. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray. Knives Out is currently in theaters, enjoying some robust box office, so hopefully it'll be there for a little while. We'll be right back with your next picture show, which will also help you catch up on things. Finally, it's time to catch each other up. Hey, see what we did there on films or <laughs> film-related items that we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in hopes that it'll put interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? 
Uh, well, we're recording this episode in early December, but it's scheduled to drop on December 24th, otherwise known as Christmas Eve. So I'm going to take this as a final opportunity to recommend a holiday film and one that's available on Netflix now, should you be listening to this on Christmas and are looking for last minute holiday viewing suggestions. And if you're listening to it after Christmas, well, I put a pin in it for next year or, or watch it after Christmas. It's not an especially Christmas cheer centric movie, at least not until its final act. Um, the movie I'm talking about is Klaus. Klaus, Klaus, K-L-A-U-S, which happens to be Netflix's first original animated feature. But even more unusual than that is that it is a hand-drawn animated feature, which is definitely a rarity these days. Uh, It was directed and co-written by Sergio Pablos, a former Disney animator who worked on films like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules, and has dabbled in CGI animated films, but then established his own animation studio in Madrid with the sort of specific intent of exploring how to make traditionally animated features viable and relevant today. Uh, And that was sort of the seed of intent that turned into Klaus, which does look at first glance not that different from a lot of CG animated films you see today. But as you watch it, it reveals this very specific warmth and texture that clearly comes from a commitment to hand-drawn visuals. So I think that alone makes the film worth checking out if you're an animation buff, uh, Christmas plot aside. Uh, But there is the matter of that Christmas plot, and it's actually pretty cheeky and fun and not overly schmaltzy. Uh, And there's some really distinctive and sometimes outright weird humor (laughs) sprinkled throughout. Uh, As you might guess from the name, it's essentially an origin story for Santa Claus, told through the perspective of Jesper, a privileged jerk who watches out of the Royal Postal Academy and is forced by his wealthy father to go to this super isolated, far northern island community and establish a postal service there within one year as a sort of last chance for Jesper to prove himself before he's cut off from the family wealth. Uh, When he gets there, he realizes that the town is inhabited by essentially two huge families that have been feuding for generations and have no interest in talking to each other, much less writing and sending letters. Uh, So in order to meet the requirements of his father's ultimatum, Jesper basically starts running a con among the town's children, involving them sending letters to the mysterious, large, bearded guy living in the woods who just so happens to be really skilled at making toys. Uh, You can probably guess where it goes from there. The film does make its way toward the requisite Christmas cheer-filled conclusion, but on its way there, it remains just off-kilter enough in its humor, its characterization, and its setting uh, to feel fresh. Uh, And it's helped along by some great voice performances, including Jason Schwartzman as Jesper, J.K. Simmons as Klaus, and Joan Cusack as the matriarch of one of the warring families. Uh, Not to mention, there's that aforementioned hand-drawn animation, which is really quite lovely and honestly kind of heartwarming to see in its own right. Uh, So, yeah, as I said, well worth a look for both animation buffs or anyone looking for a slightly off-kilter original Christmas movie to close out the holiday season. Kids? Kids? Uh, yeah, I, I, there's, uh, you know, the, the the Netflix thing at the top says there's some rude humor. Uh, oh. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple of butt jokes, but uh, mm. other than that, you know, it, it, it honestly might be a little like, like a little too weird or cynical for super young kids, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but there's nothing, you know, upsetting yeah. for for young children. Oh, that's an exciting option. Man, I got a, a first look at the process behind that film 
when I was uh, visiting Netflix earlier this year, and I was so excited for it, and now I haven't watched it yet. But <laughs> I will say that uh, the director has has put a ton of process videos on YouTube, um, mm-hmm. animatics and sketches and uh, tests for for various kinds of the uh, the CG lighting and shading and stuff they did, and they actually make for really fascinating viewing. So if you're interested in the whys and hows of uh, animation, like after watching the film, I would head on over to YouTube. It's uh, if you just put the director's name in, it is not difficult to find the studio's channel and uh, just a ton of material there. But Scott, how about you? Uh, yes, well, I would like to recommend another thing that you can find on streaming services, uh, specifically Amazon Prime, and that's The Report. Uh, the Report was in TIFF and was in theaters quite recently, and now is a pretty big featured item on Amazon because it's it's the year of Adam Driver, and here he is again playing uh, Daniel Jones, uh, who is the lead investigator for the Senate Intelligence Committee on a report about the CIA's use of torture uh, following the 9-11 attacks. And um, under the guidance of Diane Feinstein, who's played by Annette Benning, Jones um, and his, his team, which ends up eventually being a team of one, pour through all this information, all these, all these emails, all the, this communication, and comes up with this giant report that, of course, is immediately politicized but full of extremely disturbing uh, revelations about the CIA's use of enhanced interrogation tactics and uh, the very dubious utility of those tactics to gain useful information. So it's a pretty striking movie. It's very much done in the, you know, all the president's men style, very straightforward. I mean, it's, a, it's written and directed by Scott Burns, who had done some work for uh, Steven Soderbergh, The Informant, uh, most prominently, which is a movie I love. And it could maybe use a little bit of that Soderbergh pizzazz. It doesn't have that. But there's a kind of an integrity to that as well. Uh, it's extremely process-oriented. It's extremely detail-oriented, just like this character. And it's got a lot of integrity. And I think, it, politically speaking, you know, it's pretty sharp. And, I mean, it includes a very short but quite stinging uh, dig at uh, Zero Dark Thirty as being kind of a, a, a CIA-approved, you know, whitewash of this, of uh, what actually happened. And um, yeah, I think politically it, it's exciting. So I think, you know, again, if you're into that sort of, if you know, if you're into the politics of this or and if you like that, that aesthetic that all the president's men style, and of course, you know, if you like Adam Driver, as you should, I mean, all, all those things are, you know, this is a pretty first-rate movie. I had a great time with it. Tasha? Um, I'm going to recommend a film that uh, it's actually a little so I'm a little sorry that uh, this episode is dropping as late as it is, because as we're recording it, uh, the this movie has not yet hit theaters. It's The Aeronauts, uh, directed by Tom Harper, which is a movie uh, coming to Amazon Prime Video later in the month. It'll be on Amazon Prime on December 20th, but it's going to hit theaters for a limited release on the 6th, December 6th. I'm not sure how wide that's going to be. I suspect not very wide. I suspect it's going to be one of those uh, New York, LA, uh, maybe a few other cities kind of things where it's all about uh, qualifying for awards. But I saw this movie at TIFF and I was just so struck with the the degree to which it belongs on a big screen. Scott was pointing out that it's going to be in uh, Chicago on 70 millimeter mm-hmm. at, the, at the music box. And it's a movie that absolutely feels like it should be on an IMAX screen or a 70 millimeter screen. It should be on something huge. It's going to be fun on Amazon Prime Video, but it's also going to be small. And this is a really big film. 
The Aeronauts was inspired by a bunch of real life history and books about Aeronauts. One of the the main characters played by Eddie Redmayne is kind of an amalgam of a couple of people. Uh, the other person who's significant in the film played by Felicity Jones is kind of an amalgam and a gender swap of uh, a couple of people taking in aspects of uh, other, pe- other people of the history. And the big balloon trip in the film is similarly amalgamated by a bunch of different things that happen on a bunch of different trips. So if you see people uh, touting it as a real life story, you can give them a little bit of uh, a little bit of the old <laughs> eye roll. Um, would but- you say that they're full of hot air? I would now. Uh, in, in fact, I would as often as I can, uh, always crediting myself with having come up with that particular balmo. It's about ballooning, and it's specifically about uh, like early ballooning and the attempt to get high enough into the atmosphere to get new data about the stratosphere and about the world and about how that affects weather. Um, it's like a scientific journey. It plays kind of like a, a Disney original movie. It's very much an adventure between two people, one of whom is an experienced uh, aeronautist who had a terrible tragedy in her past, and one of whom is a dedicated scientist who has a lot of theories and, and not much experience. And they both bring different things to this this one long balloon ride that's kind of the centerpiece of the movie. But for something that's so stage bound in a way that's so set bound and in this case the set being a small wicker basket hanging from a balloon it's very dynamic it's it's visually just so rich and gorgeous as harper kind of backs off and takes in the immense expanse of sky this balloon is floating through he really gives you a visceral feeling of setting and he manages to come to a point where flying into the sky in a balloon feels as as fraught and dangerous and alien as diving to the Marianas Trench or or going into space. There's just this kind of agonizing feeling of of separation and, and danger that could only come from doing this in a time period where flight wasn't wasn't an issue where uh even like ballooning was considered tremendously dangerous and and a matter for like very experienced very daring people the two characters uh played by Redmayne and Jones are I think really well drawn there're certainly types of a sort uh there aren't a whole lot of surprises in the interactions between them but they play them in a very sincere and and capable way I just I really enjoyed how this story unfolded uh how it jumps back and forth in time to kind of get you into the adventure and then set you up with a, a deeper understanding of the characters it's not a deep film. It's not a resonant film. It's not a, a cinema for the ages. But boy, is it enjoyable and, and visceral and exciting and just beautifully, beautifully shot. Uh, Tom Harper, incidentally, uh, director of Wild Rose, which also through a quirk of releasing came out this year. And that film, uh, if you haven't seen it, I feel like we might have recommended it here. The Jesse Buckley film about a Scottish uh, country singer and uh, her sort of adventures in trying to have a career and trying to be a parent. Uh, Also a really terrific film. And if you liked the way that film deals with emotion and character and stakes and and conversations between people, I think you're probably really going to dig Amazon's The Aeronauts. Keith, what about you? 
Okay, you recommended a. I'm, I'm pointing here, just so listeners love this. You recommended a new movie on a streaming service. You recommended a new movie on a streaming service. You recommended a new movie on a streaming service. I'm recommending an old movie, uh, also on a streaming service. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I'm doing a list of war movies, and I'm catching up with a few that that have great reputations I haven't seen yet. Uh, one of them was Overlord, uh, not the 2018 horror film, uh, which I also need to see at some point. But it's a 1975 film directed by Stuart Cooper. And it's a really interesting, it works as a film and it works as a fascinating exercise. It is about half new footage and half newsreel footage from World War II. And it follows uh, just sort of an everyday, sensitive, but you know, ordinary uh, kid who is, um, you know, called up to fight. And it follows him through his journey to basic training, through basic training, and his time before and his deployment. And it's it's as simple as that. Really focuses on one character. Um, the just kind of gives you a sense of what life would be like in the situation for one person who had no great interest in fighting, but but was you know went out of a sense of duty and and what happened to him. And it's um you know it's it's very documentary like in its approach. Um, the cinematographer is John Alcott, who who shot uh, many of Stanley Kubrick's films, and to achieve the effect of putting with the stock footage and, and the new footage he used uh, old equipment and old film stock and it really does look impressive in a way that you know, World War II films that use, use stock footage uh, usually don't. Uh, it, it really does feel seamless but the kind of mix of, of real and not real gives it this weird eerie in sort of out of time tone to it. I really admired it. I, I think it's, it's worth seeking out. It is in the Criterion channel and it's also on a, it was released as criteria. And the other thing about it is, is you could not see it easily here for a, a long time. It screened every once in a while, and it played on uh, this sort of fringe um, LA station called Z Channel, where a lot of movies that developed cult followings uh, mm-hmm. first first appeared. Uh, but only really played American theaters in 2006 and came out on Criterion in 2007. So uh, uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it, it turns out I have seen it. <laughs> the, 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 title, the title rang a bell, and I think I reviewed the uh, Criterion for AV Club back back in the day. Would you would you call the film a, a, a would you say that it spins a hypnotic tone from flash forwards, fantasy sequences, and dreamlike premonitions? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I, I I thought I thought it did at the time. Yeah, so, uh, uh, that works. Yeah, so I I recommend it. I don't keenly observed. I wish I I wish I remembered it quite has more of a stronger strong memory than I think I saw a movie called Overlord <laughs> back in the day. But um so yeah. You I, see a lot of movies, Scott. I, we'll, hey, we'll I let do. you off the I hook. Do. It's fun, it's very funny to kinda of go back and like remember entire films uh based on the fact that there, there's a review out there somewhere that I wrote. Well thank you, Genevieve, Scott, Keith, past forgotten Scott. <laughs> we're we're glad to have all of your recommendations, but uh past forgotten Navy Club Scott, uh probably more so because we, we get fewer visits from him. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out December 31st and January 7th. Scott, how are we going to be straddling the new year? What are we seeing? Well, uh, with films like Heaven Knows What, Good Time, and the new Uncut Gems, the Safdie brothers, Josh and Benny, have been making independent films that emphasize heightened realism, explosive performances, and a gritty look that evokes a different era in urban cinema. In those respects, 
their work feels like a throwback to the films of indie pioneer John Cassavetes. And Uncut Gems, in particular, has a lot in common with Cassavetes' 1976 crime film, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Just as Adam Sandler's jeweler in the Safdie's film finds himself in terrible trouble with the criminal element, Ben Gazzara's strip club owner in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie also gambles himself into a compromising position with the mob. On our next pair of episodes, we'll examine the indie styles of the Safdies and Cassavetes, the flawed rogues at the center of both movies, and a shared appreciation for aesthetic beauty. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Brick, Knives Out, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Again, we're thinking about an episode that's just feedback and just related to unanswered questions about past episodes or questions about film and the cinematic world in general. So please send those in. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Oh, um, yes. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, The Ringer, and uh, other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Keith? Oh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can find my work at The Ringer, at Vulture, at Polygon, uh, at Fangoria, and uh, a bunch of other places. So, yeah, check it out. And do you have any special announcements that you haven't made on previous episodes? Oh, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book about Nicolas Cage movies. I don't want to, you know, it won't be out for a while. So (laughs) I have a lot of work to do still. But I sort of like uh, attempt to figure out uh, the last 40 years of Hollywood by watching a lot of Nicolas Cage movies. Think about about making your pre-order a long time from now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Given the fact that uh, there are are maybe one chapter written at this point, uh, it's, it's, it's a little ways away. Well, nonetheless, I mean, it's sold. It's a book. It's it's going to be in the world. Like that's that's the exciting news. And what's it called? I mean, we can all say we're writing books. Tentatively, that's sort of different. Not even tentatively. It's called Age of Cage. Age of Cage. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Rock of Cages. <laughs> oh, not, hold on. I got to run an email to my uh, editor. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait. Have you just plotted out the sequel? Is this going to be a trilogy as it turns out? Mm, we'll see. Genevieve, how about you? Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at vulture.com and you can find me tweeting. Oh, I'm tweeting so much these days uh, <laughs> at, at Genevieve. You, you have stepped it up. You're on there more. <laughs> up to two once in or one twice day. A day. It, was, it was exhausting. Mm. I had to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> Tasha, what about you? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where you can find me uh, occasionally writing and uh, interviewing people such as Tom Harper, director of The Aeronauts, uh, talking to him about exactly how he made that movie, uh, because after seeing it, I was pretty fascinated with it. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. We need those sweet, sweet Apple Podcast subscription hits. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. 
We're so close to 100 reviews. Someone leave a couple. We just need like a couple more. We'll be at 100 reviews and it'll make me happy. And a nice round number, <laughs> which you can then immediately spoil by adding another review and just completely <laughs> messing with Genevieve's sense of, of balance and stability and decorum. And who would not want to do numbers. that? <laughs> Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. As we're recording today, he's out sick. We wish him all the best. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Oh, okay.